Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Because he has a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. Woohoo! Monday, October 17th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm Matthew Zachary, a 15-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And I'm Lisa Bernhardt, 16-year young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It's not okay that 70,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer every year. No, it's so not, Matthew. No, it's not. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Ah, time to get busy living because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show is going to be a great one. It's still October. It is the focus on Komen and breast cancer late effects. Joining us is Melinda Beck, health journal columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Alyssa Thorner, she's a two-time young adult breast cancer survivor. She's a program coordinator at Johns Hopkins Breast Cancer Program, and she's a member of Komen's Multicultural Advisory Council. And also Bridget Spence, she is a young adult survivor of stage four breast cancer. She's a blogger of My Big Girl Pants, and she's also a member of Komen's Multicultural Advisory Council. Kicking it off, she's big, she's bad, she's bold, Tanya Katan, she's a young adult breast cancer survivor, a writer, activist, and humorist. And she is author of, among many other things, My One Night Stand with Cancer. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation online at stupidcancer.com. We're not your father's cancer society, and we're bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight where it belongs. Where it belongs. So welcome aboard another funful and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is not a cure and survivorship is all that matters. And a Stupid Cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes. Download us there as we broadcast live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. And finally, as a reminder, the Stupid Cancer Show has a live interactive chat room. During each broadcast, we invite you to join in the fun, connect with our friends, and ask questions of our guests. Where's our chat room tonight, folks? Well, it's getting started. Crank it up in the chat room. It's just getting started. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell your chatty cousins. Well, I mean, most of the people that listen to the show listen to the podcast. That's true. If we get like 50 to 70,000. But we normally have 
a few more folks in the chat room. I know, but could you imagine if like we had 100 people in the chat room? It would be chaos. I would like 100 people in the chat room, Matthew. Never enough. Never enough? Never enough. Okay. We want people talking. We want them chatting. We want them communing. Well, right, they're all on the Stupid Kids of Forums right now, actually. We should probably send the notice to the forums once a week and say, hey, guys, check out the show. You mean we're cannibalizing ourselves? Yes. <laughs> There's like 1,100 people on the forums now, every day. Is all that day, right? Every, yeah, it's amazing. We're up to 1,100. It's 1,100. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. That's intense. So, um, That's I've, a lot of I've, chatting. Quick news, my carpal tunnel came back. And the reason I mention this is because when I was misdiagnosed with brain cancer, I thought I had carpal tunnel. So 15 years later, they, they're right. Because they thought you're... Yeah. Yeah. So 15, they were prognosticators. So 15 years later, they're right. I finally have they carpal tunnel. They finally got that carpal tunnel diagnosis, yes. that pesky carpal tunnel diagnosis. After 15 years. They've nailed it. I had to go through brain cancer first <laughs> and then to get the carpal tunnel, but yes. You know what's weird is I had this weird inflammatory thing in my knuckles, but I had breast cancer. Do you think I have no, carpal just, tunnel? That's from... just r- rheumatoid arthritis. No, I'm not that old. <laughs> I'm not that old. Stop it. Arthritis was ruled out. Okay. Everybody liked you. All my friends chimed in. It's arthritis. It's not arthritis. You can get arthritis in your 30s. I don't have arthritis. You didn't. You said you, what you didn't say was, I'm out of my 30s. So you're <laughs> I'm welcome. Not, I'm, <laughs> anyway, uh, so in the news, there was big news today. Juliana Rancic, the host of E! News, uh, was on the Today Show and talked about how she recently got a breast cancer diagnosis at age 36. Interesting fodder for today's conversations with our guests as well. Yes. Sparked a minor controversy going on right now on my Facebook wall. It's going on right now on your Facebook wall. Yes. The question is, many people knew that she was undergoing like heavy-duty fertility treatments because she couldn't conceive with her husband. They showed it on their reality show. She right. was married to Bill Rancic, who won The Apprentice. Right. So she went through and... two like intensive rounds right. of Lupron and all the stuff. My wife went through it. But, like, she was starting her third round, and it messes with you. And one of the doctors said, you know, what is it? They felt one of the breasts felt wrong or well, something? Well, this is interesting. According to what I've read here, and, and I didn't see the Today Show clip, but from what I'm reading, it seems like what the doctor said was he wasn't going to put her through a third round of fertility treatments without have, having her have go for a mammogram. Um, that sounds unusual, for under 40, that's and he said because if there's any, I'm giving you estrogen. If there's any risk, right, for something to grow, I want you to go have a mammogram. I haven't quite heard of something unfolding in that manner, but uh, so she, but she went and had a mammogram. And as far as she's concerned, trying to have a baby, she feels saved her life because they caught something and they saw something, and now she's going to be treated. Anyway, our thoughts go out to No, they certainly do. And, and, and I mean the people that are like hating on her just because she had fertility treatments. Whether it is They've, whether it's true or not is irrelevant. Don't hate on somebody because they got breast cancer. No, I mean there's you know, so many women going through fertility. They've never of course doctors have never shown any link between cancers and fertility. So she's my age, she's thirty six I'm thirty seven. She's thirty six. She's thirty six. Wow, yeah. all right. She's we got a snagger. Sure. When she comes snag down to her. earth and she's fine, which she probably will be, we got a snagger. Have her come on the show. Yes. Uh, I have a quick announcement here for all our folks out there. We announced this on Facebook. Um, but we are sad to report that the closing of the Stupid Cancer Street Team project has happened on FanCore. After several months of experimental operation, it ultimately did not meet our goals for engagement, outreach, or cost effectiveness. It has subsequently been shut down until further notice. So thank you to everyone who took advantage of its unique platform, the Stupid Cancer Street Team. Uh, is no longer. We apologize if this decision has caused anyone 
confusion or inconvenience, but hopefully it may come back one day in the future. Maybe can we just have people that actually go out on the street? Yeah. Like gorilla, go, gorilla, physically PR on the street. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We'll try that next. If anybody would like to actually troll the streets for us, you're more than welcome. <laughs> we'll load you up with goodies. So, uh, so before we get to uh, to Tanya in a few minutes, um, quick shout out to Gary Satowski. Gary Satowski, the man on my Facebook wall, who had a tattoo of the stupid cancer wristband. On his wrist. That was intense. That man gets props. Gary Sikowski, a tattoo of a wristband on his wrist. He's flipping the bird and everything. Man, that guy. He's got another. That guy's got to come to Vegas and go to the tattoo parlor at the Palms. That that's dedication. That's that's the cause. That's fighting for the cause right there. Yeah, everyone in else ink. you can suck it. Gary, you're in. <laughs> in ink. In the, on the skin. Unless you unless you get a tattoo of my logo on your wrist, yeah, fine. <laughs> there you go. Beat that, people. Well, we'll have a constituency of one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. The only no, way you can beat that is if you get an eye to white tattoo in your eye. They have those now. What do you mean? They have tattoos of your eye. Of your eye? No, no. Wait, in your eye. In your eye? They tattoo your the white part. Oh, that's yeah, gross. That, go to YouTube. They, it's there. How do they possibly do that? If it's possible. And have it be healthy. First of all, if it's possible, it's probably already happened already. And you probably get hep C, too. It's got to be bad for you. Oh, it's got to be awful. You can have eye tattoos. It's, I'm very serious. You should just get fake I2Y contact lenses. <laughs> we can come up with those. Like those guys on the, the TV show V? Yeah, we can come uh, up with those. Fantastic. And, of course, I just wanted to announce that there's actually a stupid cancer shot glass now. Um, <laughs> because I'm, we always encourage no, drinking. No, because we encourage drinking, but it's, it's really like letting, letting loose. Because it's so good for you. Put water in it. I don't care. <laughs> I just buy a stupid cancer shot glass. Send us a picture of you drinking from it. Oh, no. And we'll send you a T-shirt. No, we don't want to encourage people that much. We you, should, we, look, you could lie to me. Drink water out of it. Everyone, I just want to see a picture of people drinking from our shot glass. Every once in a while, it's okay to have a shot. Of water. But I don't, <laughs> I don't know that we want to encourage it to the degree that we'll hand out T-shirts, that we're going to reward people for doing shots. I want There's a difference of, there. There's well, a again, line that we may have crossed people with that. Can, if, all right, if it's a six-year-old... I would believe it's water in the shot glass, and I will still send a six-year-old a T-shirt. What about applesauce? And shots? the new tagline is "Get busy drinking." Get busy drinking. Water. Get busy drinking water. For our new our new sponsor, Aquafina. I'm kidding. Okay. Dear Aquafina. All right, Matthew. Please like us. Yeah. All right. Is should that we, it? Should we bring out our first guest? I think we. Uh, she's been patiently waiting a whole minute. <laughs> for, I'm going to do the introduction here. Okay. Um, what song do we have for her? We need a good one. Uh, Come on, crank it, crank it. Hit us with a good one. Oh, this isn't bad. I like. Tanya Katan is the author of the award-winning memoir, My One Night Stand with Cancer. She actually got Melissa Etheridge to endorse this book, people. Melissa Etheridge said, this book rocks. It's passionate, playful, and downright beautiful. Katan has been seen and heard on NPR's Snap Judgment, the Comedy Central stage with Sit and Spin, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and more. Her writing and performances have been reviewed in the New York Times, in the Advocate, Go Magazine, Bitch Magazine. Wow, we're getting hardcore here, and many others. She teaches a renowned workshop in Italy called Topography of Memory. And for more than, oh, more than 20 seconds or so about Tanya Catan, you can visit www.tanyacatan.com. And we'll put that up in the chat room. We are very happy to announce joining us tonight, Tanya Catan. Are you there with us? 
I sure Anya. am. Hey, I got a tattoo of both of you. Oh, on, you on my, on my chest. It's, you it's complicated, but I like it. We can't see you, so you, you can I say know. that. And it we'll... was hard getting Matthew's stubble right, but, oh. you know, I figured it out. My stubble, my, my stubble wasn't so hard. You're, no, no. Yours was, I mean, I'm glad you waxed on that particular <laughs> photograph. No, you didn't have any stubble. Uh-huh. It was just a little math space. So we're thrilled to have you. We've been kind of talking and emailing and Facebooking and everything with you kind of going back, and here you are. I'm excited, and thank you for that jazzercise 80s song redone. <laughs> Although it didn't it didn't seem right, but, uh, you know, I appreciate it. All right. Well, we'll have you back next year, and we'll we'll have to be. We're a little musically challenged tonight. Please forgive no. us. All right, so we, okay, we, then. we first want to start. You've got you to gotta, uh, talk to and tell everybody your uh, your diagnosis and your your good old cancer story or history or herstory. Sure. Herstory. Sure. Um, yeah. No, don't. I just came back from a feminist art conference in L.A. <laughs> so you're herstoryed out. About the out. women's building. So you don't have to, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, it all started when I was 21. And um, I found, well, I was making out with a lady because that's how I roll. And um, <laughs> she touched my breast because that's also how I roll. Of course. And felt a, a lump. Huh. And so that was sort of the beginning of me um, ignoring it because, I, you know, I was 21. This is in 1992. And as you cats know, they weren't people weren't really talking about breast cancer and young women weren't getting breast cancer um, as often as they are now. Um, so it was sort of twofold. Um, anyway, I kind of went on and the lump got huge and um, sort of protruding out of my skin and very uncomfortable. Wow. And so I went to the doctor um, and... Um, they sort of said to stay off of caffeine and um, just, you know, keep an eye on it, and, and it got bigger and bigger. And so it was, finally it was already they, protruding oh, it, out of your skin at that point? Yeah, well, it, it grew really rapidly, um, especially it, it grew really fast. It was sort yeah. of like a pea size, and and, um, and then it kind of got bigger and bigger. Um, yeah, it just grew super fast. It was very excited to grow that little tumor. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, and so I think the the medical um, community was really dismissive because I was so young. And, again, this is a different era, and um, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I think in retrospect, of course, um, there were some definite signs that it may be breast cancer, but um, they sort of weren't taking it seriously. But I kept coming back, so I was taking it seriously, and my mom and, you know, my family were taking it seriously. So eventually uh, they had the lump removed for cosmetic reasons, and then when they biopsied it, they discovered that it was um, breast cancer. It was a stage three, and it was um, ductal carcinoma in situ. Right. Um, and, so, and, you know, it was sort of fast-growing and blah, blah, blah. Um, so that was sort of the first part of my cancer narrative. And take a and, um, it, it does go on from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I couldn't deal with just having cancer once, so I had to get it again. You're an um, overachiever. I, you know, that's that's uh, yes, I'm an overachiever in the uh, tumor growing department, yeah. and um, yeah. So I waited for ten years. What the hell? And sure. um, and then you know the same thing. I was making out with another toxic lady, <laughs> and I won't say that there's any connections between toxic <laughs> relationships and cancer, but perhaps there are. Oh, uh, no. And. And yeah, and for real, she uh, seriously felt another lump. And uh, second time around, I really, you know, 
I had a very intuitive response, and I sort of knew that this was not okay. And, in fact, it ended up being a second um, primary breast cancer diagnosis 10 years later at 30-ish years old. Wow. So, yeah, I've been busy. You've been, been busy. busy. So tell us about because your attitude is you're out there, you've been photographed, you know, topless, you've written books. I mean, what's been your approach all along? From the get-go at that very young age, did you just know that you wanted to be out there and kind of outspoken about this? Talk to us about that a bit. Well, I, I, because I kind of grew up with, you know, hippie, outspoken parents who encouraged me to question authority, and um, I, you know, I developed a voice. I had a voice really early on and um, feel really lucky. So with anything that sort of came my way, it was destined to be talked about or, you know, exposed um, literally or figuratively. And so when I was diagnosed with breast cancer the first time, um, I think the biggest thing that I decided to do was not have reconstructive surgery, as many doctors and friends and sort of people encouraged, um, because I just I thought, wow, you know, I didn't do this to my body, um, and the surgery I had, you know, to to have my breast removed was saving my life. What's reconstruction doing? Is that saving my life, or it's just making, you know, other people feel okay? Because I didn't, I, I you know, I wanted to feel fine in my new body, and right. um, and so I, I said to myself, you know, if I go and I and I feel uncomfortable after a couple of years, I'll, I'll get surgery, but I just want to feel what this new body feels like first, and and then of course. By that time, I, I felt I felt like it was my new body, and I didn't need to get reconstructive surgery. Um, so that was probably the first, you know, I guess sort of loud act that I did. I mean, you know, I was 21, 1992. Everybody was telling me to get reconstructive surgery, and thought it was a really odd choice not to. Interesting, all right? Especially with you know all the pressure that society puts on young women, as you were and totally. still are. Yeah. Yeah, they want us to have boobies. They want us to have boobies. <laughs> you can quote me on that, kid. Yeah. So um, you, no, but there is, you know. I mean, you, you, you know, there's a whole societal pressure and commodification of the breast, and so it's really for other people. Nobody was sort of sensitive to the fact that um, why would you want a, a elective surgery that wasn't going to save your life? That just didn't make sense. You know, the vote from the medical community was to get um, surgery to have a breast to make everybody feel comfortable, but not necessarily me, the patient. And so I thought that was kind of astounding and weird. Um, but, yeah. you know, when went on with my life. And then um, with the second diagnosis, um, I just, you know, I opted for the tried and true. And so, yes, you know, um, after I had my second breast removed, I felt like uh, like I felt like a puppy. <laughs> my, my chest, my chest felt. I just it felt like starting over. It was sort of you know like this wonderful you know metaphoric um, tableau rasa situation on my chest. And um, I really I like my physique. And so um, what I decided to do was. Um, you know, I'd never seen any women's scars. The only women who would show me their breasts had reconstructive surgery. And so I thought it was really important for young women to see that they had options um, that weren't necessarily being encouraged by the medical community. So right. that's when I embarked upon um, my topless uh, races to raise money for breast cancer research and awareness. Right. Um, and this is, all, this is all chronicled, what you've just told us is, is all chronicled in your book, My One Night Stand with Cancer, correct? Yeah, that was very smooth, yes. (laughs) She's done this before. (laughs) Thanks for the segue, kid. 
Mm-hmm. And and listen, how the heck did you get such a ringing endorsement from Melissa Etheridge? Nicely done. Thank you. Thank you very much. I don't know. You know, she liked the book. What can I say? <laughs> I lucked out. I totally lucked out. Um, I think the publisher at the time uh, was good friends with her and um, – this is pre her cancer, and it so is. you know, sort of slipped her the book, and she adored it. And, so you're the you reason know. she got breast cancer. Oh God. Yes, ex- as we all know, you can get breast cancer by touching people's books. That's, so don't. <laughs> See, this That's is where rumors get started, and rumors are confirmed. Totally. Thank you, Matthew. Not yeah. many people know that. And I apologize for not chiming in recently. We're having some trouble with our chat room tonight. Uh, we have some spammers, oh. and apparently using the keyword breast in our international posting of the show yeah. attracts scumbags. Yeah. So we have some horrible yeah, people. Yeah, bring them on. I've just been moderating and approving and all this stuff. Anyway, I had a question for you about, um, obviously you're a very outspoken activist. What are your thoughts about, you know, uh, cancer research in general? Um, is it Does it make sense to you? Are you... One of those people that hold groups accountable. Do you follow where the money goes? Do you practice what you preach? Do you tell other people what you're doing and, and how it works? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'll say this. I mean, uh, my allegiance to uh, breast cancer organizations are, are ones that actually do practice what they preach. And, and yes, in terms of my own activism, I'm I, I'm. Con- connecting all of the parts. I'm not just going out there and, and saying, oh, this would be really fun to do without any a- awareness of, um, of a larger impact and a larger dialogue around breast cancer and its implications. Um, so, for example, Res- Breast Cancer Action is my favorite organization of all times. Um, they were just they, on the show. Last week they were they on the were? show. Last week they were on our show. I love them. Yeah, they're terrific. If I could marry an org, if we could get, if we could get <laughs> a grant to marry each other... <laughs> Well, they are in San Francisco, totally so anything's possible. Yeah, everything exactly. When a t- when they can tattoo your eyeball, yes, you know you can marry an organization. She listens to the show. <laughs> of Finally, course. someone listens to the show. You think, yeah, I know. Uh, um, no, so anyway, yeah, I mean, I think that that making conceptually accurate um, relationships around breast cancer is super important. So BCA, you know, they have their think before you you pink um, whole campaign, um, which is really, you know, uh, part and parcel for how I engage with um, breast cancer. So, uh, look, you know, I think research is, is, is um, vital. I also um, have strong support for places like the American Cancer Society who are, who are not only providing um, research or, or delving into research, but they're actually helping people every day who are dealing with cancer meet really practical needs. So if somebody doesn't have a car and they have to go to chemotherapy, you can call American Cancer Society and somebody will pick you up and drive you there. So I'm more interested in um, quality of life while we're here now. I mean, that just is my focus. Um, but I think that, you know, obviously science and research is is, you know, foundational in That's many what we're ways. all about, uh, quality of life, baby. That's what the show's about. No, that's, that's what I'm saying. Particularly yeah. tonight. Well, that's why I asked the, the question. Yeah. Because yeah. It's, yeah. What, I, what I find still in this country, and, again, this is sort of part of why we wanted you on the show to talk about this, is, you yeah. know, uh, people don't seem to understand that there's more to the cure than just research. Uh, would you agree with that, that the quality of life is equal, if not more important, to your your existence uh, with through oh, cancer? Oh, Without a doubt, yeah, without a doubt. 
And, and again, that's why, you know, the organizations that I choose to either donate time or align myself with are ones that provide services every day for human beings who are enduring this, this horrific illness. And a lot of people aren't as lucky as I am to have, um, have a wonderful family and amazing support system. A lot of people are really left high and dry. And so if, if you're not alive, you know, the, the research that's going to come 20 or 30 years from now isn't going to help anybody. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm. I, that, yeah, I'm a real advocate of, of practical, you know, application and tools for people dealing with cancer. All right, Tanya, let's talk entertainment because I'm an entertainment journalist, and I want everybody to know if we were to walk into a Tanya Katan show because you've been at all these great places, the Edinburgh Festival and Comedy Central and all this stuff. What is the Tanya Katan experience if I'm in the audience <laughs> and you're up there and I'm listening to you? What is that experience? Holy crap, Lisa! Do you really need to ask? Oh, I think baby. You know. Do you want to tell? Do you want to tell what you did last time at the show? <laughs> so that you was want me you to tell? in the news. Okay. All right. <laughs> goes, I think you know how it goes. I basically I go out on stage, right? Right. Um, some music plays, maybe a cover from an '80s song, and then, the and then women ball. start taking off their bras and throwing them on stage. <laughs> that's just what happens. That's it. That's what. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's it. Um, you know, it depends what kind of show. Um, I do a lot of uh, personal essay readings. Um, that's part of the Sit and Spin Comedy Central um, ongoing uh, show-ish that I'm a part of. Um, I adapted my one-night stand with cancer into a one-woman show called uh, Saving Tanya's Privates. Right. And so with, with Saving Tanya's Privates, for example, it's, it's a theatrical show. It feels like a play with many characters, only I'm the only... I'm the only person in it. Um, So you can expect to kind of laugh and relate and hopefully um, have some, you know, have the whole roller coaster ride that it means uh, to have relationships, fall in love, and get cancer twice, all before intermission. (laughs) (laughs) All before intermission, as a young adult. Well, a lot of people listening right now um, definitely relate to that. So adding the humor... And had, adding your out there. And I, actually, I also want to ask you, if yeah. we were to come to Italy, because this I'm very interested yeah. in, very interested yeah. in this, tell us about your um, this, this course that you teach in Italy. Yeah. Well, uh, my partner and I started a... a uh, in Italian, please? Si, si, si. Va bene. Porca miseria. There aren't any Italians listening, because I just said something so nasty. Oh, boy. <laughs> sure. Uh Sorry. Um, so we started a little uh, workshop in um, near Siena, in Tuscany. Lovely. Uh, called, uh, yeah, it's, fan- it's fantastic. It's beautiful. It's at a place called Spanocchia, and um, it's called Topography of Memory. And basically, uh, she is a, um, a professor and practicing visual artist, and obviously I'm a writer. And we've both taught for years, and we sort of created this workshop that we wanted to take. So it's, it's basically all about, um, it's about line. It's about uh, lineage and a line of text and walking in the landscape and creating a line. So, you know, there are a lot of um, exercises and, and micro-workshops that we, we teach um, as a part of topography of memory um, that involves identity and sort of, uh, you know, exploring identity and, and art in the everyday life and taking these tools that, that people learn with us in Italy and, and going back into your, you know, your sort of typical life and infusing it. So, it, you know, okay, it's basically I think, I how I wrote. I, I was going to say, I think yeah. I understand that. 
Well, I, you know, it, it, how, how I wrote my book and how I'm able to write anything um, that is a difficult subject matter is by reframing it. It's sort of seeing the world in a different way. So walking, you know, whether you're in your daily job or life and you're like, oh, that, you know, I can't take this anymore. This sucks or this is difficult. When you have the tools to reframe it and see it in a more creative light, um, then then you can kind of, you can take your situations and transcend them and make them into something transcendent. So tell us, tell us very quickly, because we have to just wrap in a minute here, Tanya. Yeah. Where else? What's up next? What are you writing? Where can people um, see you? Where can your writing be seen? Totally. Thank, um, yeah, two, two things coming up. Um, one is in D.C. I'll be um, at GLOW, the um, GLBT Outreach and Engagement Organization, on November 15th, teaching a little workshop called What's in Your Genes? Uh, not the ones you wear, but the ones in your body, mm-hmm. and um, doing a little comedic reading. And then um, on November 18th through the 20th, I'll be at Breast Fest. Do you know this this um, film festival in uh, in Toronto? Yeah, it's, only, it's only breast cancer films in Toronto. Yeah, dates on yeah, that? it's awesome. Yeah, Breast Fest, November 18th through 20th. Terrific. Those are the next two gigs. All right, DC and Toronto. Yeah. Look out, Tanya Katan, yep. coming your way. Thank you so much for joining us, Tanya. Take care Thank of yourself. You and it's TanyaKatan.com. My One Night Stand with Cancer is her book. Yes, it is. All right. TanyaKatan.com. Thank you, Tanya. Thanks, kids. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's breeze through the news here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. All right. During this part of the show, we announce to our listeners a whole bunch of newsworthy programs, events, and services that we don't want you missing out on. And they're all free, and they're all just for young adults affected by cancer. Things like conferences, happy hours, retreats, kayaking, and mountain climbing trips, finance webinars, college scholarships, bar crawls, concerts, tweet ups, support groups, and more. If you have something coming up during this, uh, uh, coming up soon, you'd like us to spread the word about it during this part of the show. Email stupidcancer at stupidcancer.com. New email address. Go ahead, please. Okay, head on over to events.stupidcancer.com. That's where you can find everything. We're going to tighten this up here a little bit because we're running behind. Events.stupidcancer.com. Let's talk about the Stupid Cancer Forums. They have more than 1,100 members. This is your premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers. Just like you, visit stupidcancerforums.com. Sign up with one click through Facebook. All right, big news, folks. Announcing Team Stupid Cancer for 2012, the official running team for the New York City Half Marathon next March. Got feet? Actually, with our crew, you don't need feet. Feet are optional. Join, <laughs> yeah. the, join the hippest running team within one block radius of our office. Guaranteed entry, low fundraising minimums, and help young adults fight stupid cancer. Visit TeamStupidCancer.com. Limited slots available today. All right, everybody. Game on. It's the fifth annual OMG Cancer Summit for young adults in Las Vegas at the Palms Casino Resort. Mark your calendars March 30th, 31st, and April 1st for all that weekend of insanely awesome programs, events, social networking at the hippest event in all of Cancerland. Visit the official omg2012.org site and get pumped for the event. Check the OMG Players Club. That's an exciting new fundraising challenge where you can earn up to $600 in travel reimbursement and even win a brand-new iPad. And that is your Stupid Cancer Cancer News. News. Okay. We got some credible people on the show tonight. We do. Astounding and amazing, and we're very excited to have with us tonight Melinda Beck from the Wall Street Journal. 
She's a columnist for the journal. She writes the weekly health journal column and related features in the personal journal section of the paper. She was formerly an editor of the journal's marketplace section. She joined the paper as deputy marketplace editor in 1996. Prior to the journal, Melinda was with Newsweek magazine. She wrote more than 25 cover stories there and received numerous journalism awards. Gosh, she's won lots of awards. Is that all? I'm not impressed There's so many awards. The Arthritis Foundation, AARP, American Society on Aging, the American College of Emergency Physicians, the National Institute of Healthcare Management. This list is too long. I can't read all of these awards. Tonight she gets an honorary Stupid Cancer Award. How about that? I agree. And she has a bachelor's degree from Yale University. Wow, and we got her on our show. All right, we're thrilled to welcome Melinda Beck to the show. Melinda Beck. Melinda, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, and thank you for calling me credible. It's <laughs> the nicest thing I've heard all day. Well, the audience doesn't know that that uh, Lisa's on payroll, so. <laughs> so we're so excited to have you on the show because you wrote this terrific piece in the journal that ran uh, last Tuesday, and we're going to post the uh, link to the story on our website here, the new front in breast cancer after treatment ends, because that story is so much about what this show and this organization is about, which is quality of life issues after the treatment ends. So first of all, this came from a new survey that came out from, came out from the cancer support community, our friends who've been on the show. Um, and so tell us about some of this, some of the good stuff that young adults who are diagnosed now have to look forward to as they live and survive 10, well, 15 years down the road. <laughs> and first of all, and, and I don't have to be, and I'm sure I'm not the only one to, to, to tell you all this, that you're alive. <laughs> so, so that's the thing Jump to bear down. in mind. That's good. <laughs> you know, put this in perspective. Yeah. Um, because, and, and 2.5 million breast cancer survivors and growing are out there living longer, many more of you all the time. And, and I think there's been a tendency all along to say, okay, well, you're alive. You know, why complain? Right. And it's only because what we're now expecting people to be alive and, and realizing that this is the goal, after all, to, to keep them alive and to keep them alive for many, many more years that we're starting to say, well, okay, now, so maybe, you know, we can, we can expect that. So, let, uh, so let's try to raise the bar on all of the, the rest of those years. And I think we're going to be hearing more and more of this. Um, and I, I was struck because uh, by this new survey from the cancer support community um, because it was really one of the first to try to quantify what, what what lingering complaints and what new things are cropping up for breast cancer survivors. And, and it happened to come on the heels of I, I was at the North American Menopause Society conference um, just a week before this came out. And I was hearing a lot. That's from a rocking event, I've heard. That, that, that's a wild, wild was, party of an event. Gene Simmons was there. <laughs> yeah. You know, the highlight was when they put um, um, uh, vaginal lubricant on everybody's hotel room door <laughs> in a little favor bag. That's right. my kind of event. <laughs> my husband thing. said, yes, they thought everybody was going to get lucky tonight. <laughs> but, but a lot of this is a guy, OBGYNs, and a lot of the talk there was how they have they have so many patients who are breast cancer survivors who who are coming to them with a lot of issues that they they think that a lot of medical oncologists ha- have not really focused on because they've been so focused on keeping any cancer recurrence to an absolute minimum right i think a lot of us know obviously the social and kind of emotional fallout that can happen and can continue to happen which is somewhat surprising even many years out that that kind of lingers <clears throat> stroke 
<laughs> but some of the physical um, effects that happen, I mean, Matthew just said, I mean, not a breast cancer, but brain cancer. Matthew had a mini stroke recently. He was delighted by that. Actually, that, it was a full-blown stroke. Okay, it was a full-blown stroke. That's yeah. right. <laughs> well, it's, you're functional and you're here, but that was, uh, that was one effect that he had. But talk to us again about some of the, the specifics that are coming up for, for some women long-term. Well, I, I will never forget that one highlight or perhaps low light uh, of this, the menopause conference was to, to hear very respected researchers standing up at the podium waving her arms about 400 million shriveled vaginas. <laughs> or, yes. Wait, wait, let me picture this. One second. Let, wait, I'm, I'm still thinking, I'm still thinking, I'm still thinking. Okay, I'm fine now. Well, so, um, so vaginal what? atrophy. Yes, because this is one thing that the OBGYNs are seeing um, in, you know, all kinds of postmenopausal women, um, but particularly in breast cancer survivors who've been not only just not allowed to go anywhere near estrogen replacement, but for for many of them been on these super effective estrogen blockers for five years or ten years. You know, there's research now going on into the efficacy of 15 years and while it may um, really reduce the amount of um, of estrogen that could be going to estrogen-positive uh, breast tumors, um, if you look at the risk there, there in many of these studies it's reducing the risk from 6% per year down to 3%, which which is very considerable and, and not to be... Um, forgotten, sure. but they were saying that the risk of vaginal atrophy is more like eighty percent. Wow! And it, it's one of those use it or lose it situations. Um, if you do continue to have sex and you're you're lucky enough to be in a relationship where you can um, into your sixties and and seventies, um, you do get some natural lubricant there. But particularly for women that have had a hiatus in their relationships. Um, and then meet somebody and want to get back in the game, it can be virtually impossible. Wow. So it's better to try to keep having sex, obviously, safely yes. in a relationship. <laughs> That's again, one takeaway from this. If, if you're fortunate. Vaginal atrophy sounds like a sort of angry, good name for sort of an angry punk rock band for a bunch of, like, <laughs> menopausal women. I'm going to Google atrophy. that right now. That's getting Googled right now. <laughs> um, I bet yeah. they're in, like, Vancouver. <laughs> Well, they're they're getting bolder about talking about this, and and I yeah. think we're going to be seeing a TV commercial pretty soon for what for one of these estrogen cream products. Um, you know, and there was a lot of talk at this conference about how you can have these erectile dysfunction drugs sure. commercials all day long, talking right. about four hour erections, but get anywhere near a women's private parts. And you know, heretofore at least the networks have blanched. She said here too for. I know. That's because she's credible. That's above our intelligence <laughs> barrier. <laughs> but given that what I was talking about, I figured it would like even out a little bit. <laughs> um, so that's that's amazing actually. I mean it shouldn't be amazing, but that advertising is actually going to finally approach this. I mean you're right, you make a terrific point of all the uh all, all the uh, commercials that have been the Viagras and such, so to never have something publicly address this is pretty astounding. So we'll be seeing, and let's also talk about um, tamoxifen because tamoxifen too. I mean, I I actually had a choice to take tamoxifen, didn't because I'm a polyp maker, 
One of my many achievements. Yeah. I'm gonna answer your business, your business card. E V P Paula Baker. Right. And um there is a small risk to uterine cancer, but uh which is very small, but so they were on the fence. But there's also um talk to us again about some of the if many young women take tamoxifen if they have uh estrogen positive, E R positive tumors, correct? Correct, and and I, I assume many in your audience know more about this than I ever will because they've been living with this and studying with this. But for the benefit of those who don't, um, tamoxifen is another one of these sort of systemic estrogen blockers, although apparently it has this cool function of working to block estrogen some places like the breast, but to work like an estrogen in other places like the uterus. And it can give women a, uh, a higher risk of uterine cancers or polyps. Right. So this is one of the many areas of medicine where doctors and patients and everybody else is having to balance, you know, one evil against another. And it, it often boils down to kind of what you're most afraid of. And I, I think I, I'm sure a lot of your audience is most afraid of cancer. And with good reason. Right, right. Um, I'm more afraid of bears. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so so one one thing that they have found is for, for women that have these estrogen-positive tumors, it, re- it really does help to put them on a an estrogen-blocking drug, tamoxifen for premenopausal women and an aromatase inhibitor for postmenopausal women. But we're just beginning to see some of the the long-term problems associated with, with you know, that sort of deal with the devil. Sure. In your piece, you also mentioned other specifics like heart problems, nerve damage. Um, can you also, can you speak specifically to, to some of those? A lot of those have to do with chemotherapy and radiation. Right. And, you know, and, and there, this really goes for cancer um, patients of all kinds. And, you know, like I chemo think, brain, sort of fuzzy brain as well. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're just sort of beginning to see secondary tumors, you know, 10, 15, 20 years out from people who had chemo and radiation as, as, as young people. And when you get that far out, it's very hard to tell cause and effect. So yeah. I think there's been... I'm um, the poster child for that statement. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, in your case... It was, is the stroke now from the medication or from your original ailment or something else? The stroke else? is from the uh, radiation that I had 15 years ago. They didn't have any chemo back then for me. There were no pills back then for me. So what I experienced are long-term side effects, which is basically what you're describing, regardless of the source of those or the cause. Right. I, I guess my question to you, and I, I, first of all, I love the article. I think you're opening up new minds to these ideas. And again, what I asked our last guest was that the general perception of cancer in this country, regardless of films like Fifty Fifty and regardless of the way it's getting destigmatized, is that well, you're you're done, right? Get on with your life. <laughs> and and how do we break that cycle where people realize our, our board chairman had a brilliant statement a couple of years ago? I, I want to share it with you because it's so potent. And it's kind of an awkward thing to say, but when someone gets abused as a kid, whether it's a priest or your uncle or whatever. Society is like, oh, that guy's going to need therapy for life. Like, we understand this long-term emotional side effects and ramifications from getting abused when you're six. 
so you don't turn into some creep at 40 years old. Why don't people transfer that over to cancer where they say, wow, you've got through all this trauma. You're going to be messed up for life. What can we do to help you live your best life? And, and it just brings into, it brings into contention the word cure, which is a huge conversation in the young adult community where if we're going to have side effects 15 years later, that's not cure. That's like you're disease-free for now. Good luck. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it just the, the, the public is still trying to catch up with the idea that people are still living with cancer. Right. You know, you've got to sort of excavate through all these different layers of public associations, and it's like, oh, my God, cancer. And you mean, okay, people can live through it, but people are not quite ready to, to take on the next, oh, my God. Yeah. But, but right. you all are having to. You know, what I thought was interesting, too, is that also so many people seem to lack just a basic plan for how to move forward going ahead in terms of what doctors to see. I mean, I also remember being confused. Do I need to go still see my breast surgeon? Am I done with her? Can I just do the oncologist? Am I making sure, you know, what's the yearly, what's the six-month, and all of that, and that people are still very fuzzy, surprisingly so, on exactly what they had, what kind of treatments, and what they should do, just the nuts and bolts of it going forward. Oh, exactly, and and, and I imagine that when you're when you're in it, you think you will never forget. Right. <laughs> but then lots of other things happen, and you know you change doctors or insurance plans, or you move, and it's really helpful to to have a you know a written out plan of you know what what you had and when, and what your test results were, and what what the expectations are and the you know the checkup schedule going forward and, and i gather this has been something that the institute of medicine and and many other august bodies have been suggesting to cancer care providers now for a number of years and it was very surprising to see in this cancer support uh community uh survey that only 10% of the breast cancer survivors in, in their registry had gotten one of these only ten yeah, percent, um, and this is now—it's six years since the Institute of, of Medicine recommended it. That's amazing. It's also good, you know, bring somebody. I mean, obviously, you're drowning in information, and you're scared to death when you're going through something. But also speaks to being, you know, so important to bring somebody with you who can take notes or do something if you don't have the wherewithal in the moment, or even as you're sort of coming out of treatment because you're, you know, your head is still in an altered space to uh, perhaps have somebody there who can keep notes and keep this all straight for you if you don't have a, you know, sort of takeaway packet from doctors that you can go forward with. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one other message, and I know this is something that that you all have been very um, uh, activist about, but so many of the long-term decisions, repercussions, get affected by that decision that you make on that very first day sometimes. I mean, to some astounding number, you know, somewhere in the 80s of, of breast cancer uh, patients made a decision about their treatment at that very first meeting. And, you know, just still trying to absorb the news and the numbers and the percents and the immediate side effects, let alone the long, long-term repercussions. But particularly if you've got if you're young and you've got fertility issues still ahead of you, you know, you want right. to be able to sort of take a deep breath at that point and, and have somebody say, okay, 
the odds are in your favor. You're going to survive this. Now, think about how you want to be 20, 30 years from now. You know, do you do you want to have had your the option to have your to have children? You know, right. While you may not necessarily lose it because of chemotherapy or radiation, you know, do you want to take an extra step now and just ensure that there are some eggs frozen or or sperm banked? You know, so, so many long-term things happen get decided when you're still in that fog. Right. I have one more quick question before we wrap. I remember, and this is sort of beating a dead horse in a sense, but I think it's a good conversation to have. Many, many years ago, there was a um, a journalist for the Wall Street Journal named um, Amy Dr. Marcus. I think she's still with the journal in some capacity. Uh, Amy is a friend of mine, and she wrote an article like in 03 about cancer survivorship. It was like the first article about like not cure, not research, like quality of life, and this is when the government came out with a a public health report called um, uh, I don't know, something about like we have no idea what we're doing, but all these people are living. What do we do now? That was the gist of it. And I mean, the fact that we're still having this talk like like nine years later has do, do you feel like there's been significant progress? Has the has the needle moved in the right direction with respect to survivorship, late effects, understanding the needs of people based on their age, quality of life? Have you, you experienced that? You know, you have a better perspective on this than I do, but but my my limited perspective is that so many of really the best minds and the energy and the the research money is all still on curing and you know immediate treatment, and that that's still what where people are focusing on. And but meanwhile, the numbers of people who are surviving, uh, not just with breast cancer, but lots of cancer at the back end. <laughs> Yeah. Um, are are growing exponentially. Thank God. So, Absolutely. You know, I you know, I personally wish that more attention was being paid there because that's the goal, after all, to keep right. growing those numbers. Um, but 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 like everything, I I think it will just take more getting this message out and and more people experiencing this in their own lives and in the lives of people that that really touch them before. You know, more lights go on, and and they say, okay, well, let's start looking back there. And it it may well be that in many cases, the long term is the enemy of the short term. Hmm. You know, do you do you want to place your my mind just blew. (laughs) (laughs) I know. You want to minimize your odds of a recurrence, you know, as tiny as possible, or do you want to think about whether that's going to increase your risk of a hip fracture twenty years from now? It's very hard to know the answer to that. Are you really Yoda? (laughs) (laughs) On that note, Melinda, thank you so much. We got to go. I'm I'm still quelling over credible. Oh, and she's quelling too. My favorite. (laughs) So it's uh, Tuesdays. Your your the Health Journal runs right every Tuesday. Health Journal, Melinda Beck, and And the Wall Street Journal. And uh, thank you so much for coming on, Melinda. Oh, you're welcome. Enjoy Pink Clover. You both rock too. Okay. Bye, Melinda Beck. Thanks so much, Melinda. Wow, the long term is the enemy of the short term. We haven't we haven't had a Yoda like statement like that it's for like, a long time. There's no try. Or they do, or they're not. <laughs> that that was wow. She she Or there is no spoon. She, she dropped that bomb on us right yeah. as she was parting. That was You I can't drop had, that on us when I wonder if she had that plan. I know. That was I genius. Know. Well wow. we got some friends of mine on the show tonight. I'm very excited to have them. I shall introduce them. It's really bad 80 music. I, I know. Well, the bad old, medicine. I know. It's bad medicine. I know. 
Go for it, Matthew. Bridget Spence was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer at the age of 21. My old job, 21 years old, cancer. Since then, she has dedicated her life to raising awareness about breast cancer in young women, working for Event 360 and serving as the field coordinator for the Susan G. Komen for the Cure Boston 3-Day. She also serves on the Susan G. Komen for the Cure's National Advisory Council as a voice for young breast cancer survivors. And Alyssa Thorner is a two-time cancer survivor after finding a lump in her breast at the age of 21. We've got the 21 Club going on tonight. It took her 18 months to find a doctor who would be willing to order a mammogram. Her first breast cancer diagnosis was at the age of 23. Two years later, on her 25th birthday, she was diagnosed for a second time, because twice is just as nice. She is an outspoken advocate for women living with breast cancer and has first-hand experience with some of the many concerns breast cancer can create such as coping with long-term side effects, fertility, negotiation with employees and treatment, survivors of care planning, navigating with medical professionals and obtaining insurance. Two of the most in-the-know folks I've ever met. It's a pleasure to have them. Please welcome Bridget Spence and Alyssa Thorner to the Stupid Cancer Show, ladies. Hi, Bridget. Hi, Alyssa. Hi. Hi. I'm stoked to have you guys on the show because I think it's an opportunity to lend a voice to the organization that you represent as a beacon of opportunity for the lost generation, and no one can embody that more than someone diagnosed at 21. Thank you for having us. Yes, yeah, a pleasure. Honor to be here. So let's just start the conversation really uh, with the basics. You're both young breast cancer survivors. Um, talk to us. Let's start with uh, Bridget, because I know Alyssa. Um, <laughs> what? How old were you uh, when you were, tw- you were 21 diagnosed? Um, what year was that? You don't tell how old you are specifically, but was it in the, you yeah. say just the Stone Age, Clinton, Bush, or Obama? <laughs> it was uh, Bush. Okay. I was a senior in college, and it was 2005. So I'm 2000, and um, it's it's now 2011. So I'm 28. Do the math, and uh, newly married and with a puppy. So I'm still young, but it was a Bush era, second okay. Bush. <laughs> and and so you were diagnosed in an era where there was sort of awareness already that young women got breast cancer, but obviously there's been so much progress since back then. Um, did you know that there was a young women's breast cancer community back then, or you stumbled upon it? No, and honestly, um, I've noticed in my six years, because I was diagnosed stage four, I've been in treatment for six years. And in my six years working with people who are going through chemo, I've noticed a huge sea change. It, it's getting better. But when I was diagnosed, it took six months for anyone to send me to a mammogram. Even when I went with a doctor order in hand, I was told, oh, no, we don't do this. Um, You're one in a million. This doesn't happen. So I was diagnosed stage four because no one would send me for a mammogram for several months. And so I think there's still a lot of work to be done in regards to the fact that young women get breast cancer. And, And even with people like Christina Applegate and now Juliana Rancic, it's still not talked about. Um, doctors still think that it doesn't happen unless you're in one of the, you know, the great cancer hospitals of this world. Um, your, your average doctor might not know about it if he, ha- he or she hasn't seen it before. So we need, we need more work to be done for sure. So let's hop over to Alyssa. Hello, my friend. Hi. How are you guys? Good. Great. Great to be here. 
So, so let's talk. Did you have a similar experience where you were sort of ignored by doctors and no one took you seriously? And you know, most young adults are diagnosed at stage four anyway because no one believes we can possibly have a disease like this. Yeah, so I did have a very similar experience to Bridget. It did take me 18 months to get an accurate diagnosis. And it also took me, I went to nine different centers before someone would agree to actually do a mammogram on someone my age, and I heard the very similar thing, young women don't get breast cancer. And, and, and just to re-echo what Bridget said, that you know, I think it's about changing culture, and, and it's not necessarily at these big medical or teaching hospitals. It's really in the community where most of our patients are being seen that we really need to get to kind of the grassroots of these primary care doctors and say, young people do get cancer. It is happening, and, and we do need to be vigilant. And uh, even though it's one in a million, it definitely should be something that's on your radar screen. Just out of curiosity, you said you – how many hospitals did you go through? That's James, by the way. Yeah, that's James Manning, our, James. our broadcast uh, associate. So I actually went to nine different uh, radiology centers. I was, so I was working for the federal government at the time. I had great health insurance, and there was never a problem with reimbursement, but people just kept saying, you know, the risk of doing a mammogram is much higher than the possibility of you having cancer. So um, it's really not the type of thing that we see, uh, and we're not willing to do that. Wow. So, Bridget or Alyssa, whichever one of you would like to take this, tell us what exactly is the Multicultural Advisory Council of Komen? Bridget, are you going to do it or do you want to chime in? <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, so uh, about three, Bridget, four years ago, I think you can correct my math, um, there was a panel that was put together, and there actually there were several panels to really target special needs population that Komen tries to to really get at. So there was a, a group for lesbians, bisexual, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. There was another one for African-American women. There was another one for Latina, Hispanic women. Um, and so one of the target populations or priority populations that Coleman identified that they really needed to uh, ha get a handle on and try to reach were young women. So that happened about four years ago now. So there was um, about eight or nine of us that came together across the country. Some of us were survivors, and some of us were just advocates for a variety of different reasons. Um, and then Cohen found after three years that we'd be more effective rather than having several of these separate councils to morph us into one and call it the Multicultural Council. And so the the goal of that is to really advise Cohen on ways that they can target specific populations. And so some of that may be reviewing educational material target, targeted at populations. Some of it may be advising them on how we can best reach them. Um, different methods to do that. So it's got a variety of different things. Uh, they send us to different conferences. They have us speak out for them on their behalf. They have us working with the affiliates in our areas to try to bridge the gap between national Komen and the local Komen branches. Bridget, am I leaving anything out? No, we're chief cook and bottle washers over there for you. <laughs> <laughs> and we love what we do. We love each other. And Susan G. Komen for the Cure has a fantastic ability to get the best minds together in a room, and it's really beautiful when you see that happen. Um, and everyone's so passionate about their target audience and population, and, and we love speaking for young people. So. And I think for us it's not necessarily about our own specific stories, although that for Bridget and myself that definitely led us to this particular avenue. I think it's really about carrying the voice for the greater good and for the cause. And for both of us, it's championing young women, which is definitely a population that has been ignored, and it doesn't really get a voice as much. So it's really saying, you know, we're funding particular research projects or particular opportunities. We really need to make sure that young women are being included and that we're being inclusive for all women, not just the women that, you know, the 50- to 70-year-old women that may be most highest at risk for breast cancer. So it's basically all these groups that merged looking at minorities, looking at African-Americans, the LGBT community, or 
Yes, the underserved in general. <laughs> the LBT. So that, uh, <laughs> Holman, yeah, has not um, historically targeted or, or been able to effectively target. So what's among, tell us what are among some of the biggest issues right now that you're dealing with. Is it something in the African-American community that's, you know, kind of front and center right now? Or is there one or two issues that are really at the forefront that you're that you're dealing with at the moment? Um. Gosh, Susan G. Coleman for the Care is so huge. It really depends on um, who you're speaking to. I would say, Alyssa, is there I mean, within your, obviously within your, with, I mean, right, within your council, yeah, obviously. Within yeah. our council. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I mentioned that we all kind of are working for the greater good, but we all kind of carry our torches for our particular unique causes. So I think that for, for Bridget and myself, it's also really making sure that young women are not being ignored. And so we are very much banging on the tables, if you will, saying, you know, listen, make sure you're listening to us, make sure that you are acknowledging that young women do get breast cancer and that we are here, we are present, and that uh, we can't get just washed under the rug. So I think that for us is our particular uh, niche or our corner. Uh, you know, I think that there are a variety of things that Coleman does try to fund and work through, and, and they identify each year the priority populations and, and where they want to target. So there's the scientific advisory panel that is really made up of the leading scientists and physicians in the world focusing on the uh, the bench, if you will, and um, you know, and then there are other populations that are really kind of taking it and, and in the communities. And they have specific; they launch specific initiatives like Circle of Promise campaign, where they reach out to African American populations or Latina populations. And we, as young people, would say, "Why aren't you going to this <clears throat> predominantly African American college with that initiative?" Yeah. Just to make sure that everyone's being heard. Um, with your um, Coleman on the Go initiative, don't just go to state fairs. You know, why don't you head to some colleges as well and reach young people, teach them about breast self-awareness, teach them about you know being genetically predisposed, family history, things like that. Um, so that's really our role as young people on this multicultural advisory council. So, so let me chime in here. I mean, obviously, I made it very clear to our audience that we're not here to talk about Coleman National and the larger conversations that are going on around that. Uh, we're here to talk about how the young adult voice, I mean, young breast cancer specifically with you, is, is being heard. My question is, and I always get different answers when I ask this of different people, but is the, the value of self-diagnosis or early detection within you know personal self-exam, it's only as good as the doctor that takes you seriously. So is, is it... Is, I don't really never saw it as a fifty-fifty. Again, I think the the real the responsibility is really the doctor who takes you seriously and who is aware to ask you if you do self-exams, rather than trying to reach a billion more people statistically to encourage them to remember to do this in their daily lives. When you're a doctor, it's your job. So again, my, my so tantamount to that is, is it worth going to groups like ASCO or AACR or uh, I mean sorry ACCC? Um, or even the general practitioners in the medical schools, are, are you guys working with those generations um, and ed educating them, and are they willing to learn? So I would say we're not necessarily going there. What is exciting is that, you know, Susan G. Komen has recently um, funded um, some research, um, a pilot program. Um, Dr. Ann Partridge, who's a leader in breast cancer in young women, um, is is piloting a program to reach out and take her she has at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute a young women's program um, that 
that is trying to go to these satellite local hospitals and improve the quality of care that women um, in other smaller hospitals receive and is, is focusing specifically on young women. So they are going out in the community as well. Um, and we do go to conferences as well. I mean, I know I go um, to ASCO and things like that. And, and Alyssa, I know you go to a lot as well. So we're, we're banging the drum also. Matthew, I would also add to that that I think that um, although it's important to, to really educate providers, and so some of that may be at professional organizations, and some of that may also be starting with trainees or with fellows and really educating on the ground floor of teaching doc young doctors how to care for, for patients and how to do screening not just for breast cancer patients but making sure they're vigilant for all young adults and how to care for them. I think the other part of that is to really educate patients and, and to say or to educate the population and say, listen, you're your own best advocate and you know your body better body better than anybody else. And so, um, you know, I think that if something's not right and you don't like what your doctor's saying, find another doctor. And so we do a lot of, you know, educating young people to say that if you don't like what your doctor's saying or something just feels off, make sure you're getting listened to and that people are taking you seriously. And I think that goes not just with cancer, but just with young people in general, to make sure you have a doctor that's really part of your team rather than a very paternalistic relationship where the doctor tells you how this is going to go. Yeah, absolutely. Bridget, I want to ask you about your, your blog, uh, uh, my, yeah. my, my Big Girl Pants, um, yes. which, is, which is terrific. And in particular, um, I mean, you write with incredible candor. And, you know, I'm looking at this line that from the post that you just did on October 7th, and, you know, a lot of people were talking about the pink washing and the whole thing. And you actually write, there, is, there isn't enough pink in this world. So you take the opposing view that you are not, you do not view this as pinkwashing at all. Talk to us about that. I believe that the energy spent debating whether or not there's too much pink should instead be spent saving lives. I just got news that the cancer is in my bones, my lungs, my liver, um, and throughout my lymphatic system. So my cancer is taking a turn for the worse. And... As long as a woman is dying, which happens several times today, I just think that a pink ribbon needs to be born every time someone loses her life. And I just think that all that energy and all those beautiful articles that are being written about um, pink washing should instead be used for something just more productive. Um, get out there and imagine something purple for ovarian cancer. Get out there and imagine something else. Um, you know, I don't get angry with the red campaign. Um, I think their project runway um, at Fashion Week is just brilliant, and I can't believe I didn't think of it sooner. So I, I just think we can be brilliant and really productive and not throw stones um, at I, something that works. I was, I was, I don't think, I mean, there's always going to be a small majority of people that are going to be the haters. I, I, my personal think, uh, my personal opinion on the the pink washing is is not it's not personal i think it comes down to corporate abuse and it's not about coleman it's not about acs it's not about live strong it's not about anybody it's about the deregulation of corporate responsibility when it comes to giving consumers the impression they're helping when they're not and that pink is something very easy to take advantage of when you're a business by making something pink and selling it without anyone ever asking where the money goes it's a very easy opportunity to take advantage of people's goodwill, and that money could be more easily and effectively directed towards productive end results. And I agree. I think okay. That, Winner! Um, I, I think that that goes down. Um, the responsibility there lies with all of us, um, as well as with 
organizations like Komen for the Cure, Komen really tries to watch their brand to make sure that that you know they they have their corporate things in place, um, their partnerships in place, and contracts in place. I think to protect their brand a little bit and make sure it only goes on things that are actually going back to the cause. But I also think that it, it, it falls on all of us. I can't tell you how many people I speak with who say, I support breast cancer all the time. You know, I um, do you have any of those T-shirts that you could send me? And I'm like, you know, you have to purchase that. You could either walk in something to get it or raise money to get it or purchase it. I'm not just going to send you a bumper sticker or a ring. So it starts with each of us, I think. And, and, I, and I think you're exactly right. We have to police it. If we hear something bad, we have to bang that drum. But we have to be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater either. I think. Oh uh, no, James, uh, our production ahead, director, wanted to jump in here. Has has Komen even thought about providing some transparency so that when they allow a company to put their logo on the product, that we at least have a record of how much money is being you know given back to Komen? Is it a penny for every million dollars that they that they create that they um, sell in products? I mean, how do, how do we know what's really being raised? Right. And. Do you, Alyssa, I have some things that I know. Do you know anything? Yeah, no, go ahead, Bridget, and then I'll chime in. When okay. Um, I do know that Komen has a very thorough section of their website that talks about how, I believe it's 80 cents of every dollar raised goes back to research and education. So that is top notch. Um, as far as specific for each partner, you could go to their national website, and I know they have each partner has their own page where it says how much of the catnip goes back to the cure. Um, or the, the Ford Warriors in Pink has promised to donate X amount at least. So you, you can know that, and, and that means that if $100,000 goes back to Komen, 80 cents of every bit of that 100000 doesn't go to administrative costs. It goes out. Um, out the door where it's needed, um, and I know they're very proud of that. As far as locally, you get very, you know, there may be local sponsors of your local affiliate, and that gets very complicated, and I can't speak to that. So you would have to have to call your local affiliate on that. Do you know anything else, Alyssa? No, I, I think that as you mentioned, that um, contracts are made with the companies, and there's a lot of vetting that goes in place. So I think that they are not just willing to accept every commercial vendor that says we want to partner with Komen and we're going to give you X number of dollars. There is an extensive uh, legal team in place that, that does vet them, and, and that there is assurances. And so sometimes it's an exact dollar amount, so it's X number of dollars, and sometimes it's a certain percentage up to. Um, but I think Komen does. You know, one thing that they do really well is they do their homework and then they they make good decisions on who they partner with and, and making sure the money goes back into the community. So, um, And I don't think that other corporations are as physically responsible, but I think Coleman, that's one thing that they do pretty well. Why Why is that not on the label of what you buy? Why is that not easily Well, it's the corporation's responsibility to, to file and sue with what Coleman claims they need to do. Um, I, I would say there needs to be more oversight in, in the hard dollars 
of and I, when I had to discuss like this is not the purpose of this interview, but I would always claim that every nonprofit that works with a corporation needs to ensure that that corporation offers full disclosure on the dollar figures of what goes on there. Because I remember there was something with um, it wasn't a breast cancer group. It was I'm not going to say what disease it was, but one of the corporations. They guaranteed like a percentage was going to, and it wasn't breast cancer, a percentage of the something was going to this up to, and there was a cap. But what they wound up doing was they made like 200% of the product so that once they reached their cap, they still oversold their branded cause product to make an unnecessary profit by taking advantage of the fact that it was tied to a cause. So I would think that the nonprofit associated with that should be held accountable that their corporate partner didn't... uh, didn't do their uh, their diligence ethically. I definitely would agree with that. I think that it's also not to put everything on the consumer, but it's definitely up to the consumer. And when right. people say to me, "I want to support breast cancer," what can I do? And there are a variety of things that people can do. You know, when people buy the pink ribbon, and it's everywhere. It's on the toilet paper. I mean, you can't go through the grocery <laughs> store anywhere else, for that matter, without seeing pink everywhere. But to do your homework and to see where the money is going to, and if it just says money for this product is going to breast cancer, I would say where. Uh, and is it going to a reputable source? Is, is it going back to the community? Is it going to a national organization? Where is it going to? Um, and I think that that's where we really need to you know, ask the, um, really important questions, of not just buying pink for the sake of buying pink. And if you want to support the cause, I think that's fantastic, and I'm definitely for it. But, you, you know, do it responsibly. I, I also actually, want to just sorry, tell survivors out there, if you are recently diagnosed and, you you know, walking two miles seems just impossible and you want to start by buying a pink razor blade, Go at it. I mean, if that's all you can do when you're in the grocery store, then start there and work your way up. But it's a great place to start, I think. <laughs> I have to say that when I, I was at my local stop and shop today and just talking about all things pink, and you know the cake that they sell in the grocery store that's like lard with lard and then more lard? <laughs> <laughs> it's like it was like some, you know, when you see like that hot pink frosting, on on that kind of a cake that's um that supermarket kind of a cake these cupcakes that were pink it was just astounding i i just have to say but that that's that was not common or no 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 no, no i'm just I'm, no that's... i'm not i'm not i'm just i'm making a general i'm chiming in here as a non common well, no it's the irony of solidarity was, that's what I it just, is i just had to mention one in just talking about pink things well, and I would actually go a little bit the other way than Bridget. I could, I definitely understand, and I think that what Bridget's saying, I have a lot of respect for that. Every you know, getting the awareness out there is so important. But as a survivor myself, I sometimes feel a little conflicted that I think it's really important to have the awareness and have people talking about it. And October is definitely filled with that. But the other side of that, um, you know, and I, I'm several years post-diagnosis, and I and I work with survivors every day. But I also sometimes feel like I'd like to go out and buy a roll of toilet paper. I'd like to go buy a cup of coffee and just my everyday thing without constantly being reminded about breast cancer. I'm in this field all day, every day, and, and sometimes I do feel like it's a little bit overload. At the end of the day, I appreciate what's being done, and I think it's a very valuable message. But I think sometimes, especially in the month of October, some of us do feel a bit overwhelmed by all of the pink everywhere. But I think also, and I would agree to, with, with Bridget's point of, you know, you're fighting for your life. Sometimes you feel like, you know, you've got the disease. You've got the, you're fighting for your life. You know, great. Pink it, baby. <laughs> Pink it good. Wait, I'm going to that domain right now. Registering. <laughs> you know, so I I, to, I totally get that as well. Totally get that as well. Um, I just want to wrap because we we actually we mentioned your blog. I want to talk quickly with Alyssa about. Um, tell us about what you do, your work that you that you do at Johns Hopkins. 
So I run the Breast Cancer Survivorship Program. We actually, um, I was approached a few years ago by someone that I had worked with who's a medical oncologist on grant reviews and a variety of different things. And, um, and he was working on writing a grant to start a survivorship program at Hopkins. So historically there had been nothing at Hopkins for this. And this came out of the 2005-2006 loss in transition um, paper from the IOM. That's the one I meant before that I screwed up on. Thank you. Okay. Uh, talking about lost in transition, that we really don't do a good job of getting survivors to the next step. So for me personally, you know, I kind of when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I put my nose down and, and did what I had to do and got through treatment. And and I was actually like a little kid in the like cutting down to the last day of school. But I was actually literally crossing them off my treatment days off on the counter, waiting for my life to return to some sense of normalcy. And then I got to the end of treatment, and I uh, really kind of hit a brick wall and re- experienced all kinds of anxiety and depression. And was this cancer coming back? And and what do I do now and my friends and family don't understand and my body's not returning to how it was and I'm 23 and my sex life is awful and I don't know how to date my body's been cut all of these things that breast cancer or cancer patients in general deal with um, and I didn't really feel like I had any resources and so someone said go to a support group and very similar to what young cancer survivors face everywhere I went to a support group and everybody was 60, 70 years old and definitely couldn't relate to what I was going through and um, so anyway, I really felt like the survivorship arena in this area, there, it was really lacking, and there weren't resources in place to really kind of deal with the next steps post-cancer. So um, we worked together at Johns Hopkins and started the Breast Cancer Survivorship Program, where we work with patients who are transitioning off of active treatment, so finishing chemo for mo- most of them, but some of them have just had surgery or radiation or whatever that looks like. And, and we've uh, implemented a one-time survivorship transition visit where our patients sit down with a nurse practitioner and, and do a treatment summary and, and survivorship care plan. And it's also a good stopgap measure to, if there's any... Uh, psychosocial issues that haven't been addressed or things that have come up post-treatment, we can kind of work with them and uh, refer patients to uh, sexual therapists or nutritionists or to get them involved in an exercise program or, you know, whatever that looks like to try to individualize a plan for them. In addition to that, um, we've developed a website. I write a blog once a month on survivorship issues, um, predominantly with young cancer survivors, although sometimes it's broader. Um, And I have a website where I've been sitting down with patients and just letting the camera roll and uh, making videos. We have about 26 or 27 videos on our website that just says, um, tell me your experience with your sex life after cancer. Tell me how you got back into shape after cancer. What were some of the hardest things? So we have a variety of different vignettes that we've put on there um, accompanying the, the medical side of it. So we have, you know, the facts and the figures and then, you know, wanting patients to hear from other survivors if this is some of the things that I went through. Um, so that's pretty much all of it in a nutshell. And the other part of it is doing some physician and, and training education. So we really want to kind of get to the next generation of providers and say, listen, this is how you need to work with cancer survivors when they go back to primary care settings and in your communities and making sure that you're taking care of all their medical needs and all their psychosocial needs. All right, we have one question from the chat room, and we've got to wrap. Um, does Coleman do anything for men with breast cancer? I know that my local affiliate here in Massachusetts has several male survivors that speak all the time and try to raise awareness, and they send them to speak at the state house and lobby for for breast cancer survivor interests. Um, And I'm I'm not sure beyond my personal experience um, with those fantastic, powerful, incredible men. Um, I think it's definitely something that's on their radar screen. So I've reviewed materials for them, and um, and you know they've basically asked me, is this culturally sensitive not just to women to men, and making sure that the the language is gender neutral. So historically, I think they're writing her and she and using pronouns for women, and I think they are really trying to move away from that to um, to 
try to be more encompassing, I would say that the large majority of materials that are out there from Kelman are uh, directed towards women, and I think that's um, appropriate for the population that they are reaching. But I think they are starting to talk a little bit about men with breast cancer, and there is some information on the website about the few hundred men that get diagnosed. So um, I wouldn't say that it's a huge priority, but it's definitely something that they um, are aware of and paying some attention to. And if you're interested in getting involved, I know they'd love to have your input. So try to reach out to your local team there. All righty. I can't thank you guys enough for taking the time to be with us tonight. You shed some light on a lot of important things, and um, and apparently I was right on something, which is <laughs> rare, but but Uh-oh. really good. Yeah, I know. We're well, in trouble well, now. Thanks We're going so much for having us. It's no, really you guys take care. Thank you so thank much. You, Bridget, yeah. Thank you both yeah. so much. Congratulations thank on you. surviving stupid cancer. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bridget Spence and Lisa Thorner from Coleman, Multicultural Council. Great young women. Very, very cool stuff. Very cool stuff. Um, I think we're done. I think we're done. done. I think we are. Let's hit it. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, everybody, that is tonight's show. That is our 201st broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. All right, special shout-out to Kenny Kane, who's not well tonight. But in studio, Reverend Dr. James Manning, thank you as always. Our Survivor Spotlight, Tanya Catan. Thank you to Melinda Beck, Alyssa Thorner, and Bridget Spence from Coleman. All right, everybody. Next week's show, we're pinking in again. We're talking, is it too much pink? We're going to have with us Hannah Klein Connolly. She's a breast cancer survivor and activist, and she's the founder of pinkwashing.org. Uh-oh. And she's the founder of her two friends. And Mia Davis, she's the organizing director of the campaign for Safe Cosmetics. And Amy Lubitow, she is... The assistant professor at the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Portland State University and in the Survivor Spotlight, Kimmy McAtee. She's a young health advocate. She's the PR and marketing manager at Keep Abreast. If you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.com or check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com. Remember, folks, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Lisa Bernhardt and myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. <laughs> Have a, the Stupid Cancer Show. <laughs> Have a great week. Good night, everybody.